This is an ABC podcast. Colditz Castle is a gloomy fortress perched on the edge of a cliff in eastern Germany. It was founded a thousand years ago in the Middle Ages and was rebuilt, modified and expanded into a 700-room nightmare. German and Polish kings used Colditz as a hunting lodge and in the early 20th century it served as a madhouse. And when the Second World War began in 1939, Hitler's men converted Colditz into a prisoner of war camp for officers, which eventually became the most famous POW camp of the whole war. And that's because Colditz was said to be inescapable. And this goaded the captured Allied officers to do everything they could to outwit the German guards and escape their clutches. Now, I grew up watching grainy black-and-white British movies about Colditz, which were enormous fun, and which presented the imprisoned officers, particularly the British, as plucky and resourceful chaps who could hit a cricket ball for a six, who could build a radio out of stolen parts and leap over a barbed wire fence while smoking a pipe. Best-selling British author Ben McIntyre is here. Ben's latest book tells a much fuller, realer story of Colditz. And it turns out that there was a lot of truth in the heroic legends. But Ben reveals a truer account of those flawed, ingenious men who were forced to pass the days, months and years in long stretches of demoralising boredom that were punctuated by intense bursts of extreme excitement as they battled their German captors and their own inner demons. Ben McIntyre's wonderful book is called Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle. Hello, Ben. Hello, Richard. The Germans boasted that Colditz was inescapable. Why were they so confident that it was so inescapable, Ben? Well, if you look at Colditz, it, it looks incredibly daunting. It's this vast Gothic schloss on, on perched over the little village of Colditz. And it looks terrifying. But the reality was that the, the Germans had made two very clear strategic mistakes here. The first was to lock up inside it Allied officers, not just Brits, but, but Australians, New Zealanders, people from Poland and France and, and the Netherlands and so on. But, but they locked up inside it officers who had tried to escape from somewhere else already. And so these were technically known as Deutschfeindlich, which is a kind of German technical word that means literally German unfriendly. <laughs> and, of course, that is what they were. And so the first mistake was that if you lock up a lot of people who are already unfriendly towards Germany and have tried to escape, they will try to escape again. And so what happened was they really managed to create a kind of university of escaping. So everybody <laughs> was competing with everybody else to get out of this place. That's the first mistake. The second one was that... Colditz is very, very old. It is ten centuries old. And it is filled with holes. Bits have been built onto, onto Colditz over the years. It has five different sewer systems. It's not a good place to put a prison camp. The best place to put a prison camp is a large field surrounded by barbed wire. That That is quite hard to escape from. Colditz, the prisoners very swiftly discovered, was full of holes. And so... The story of Colditz is really that of, of officers trying to get out and the German security guards trying to plug the gaps. That's where the sort of cat and mouse analogy lies. And, and the mice found lots of mouse holes, put it that way. The security chief of Colditz was a man called Lieutenant Reinhold Eggers. What kind of a man did you discover him to be, Ben? 
Well, he's one of my favourite characters in this whole story because Reinhold Eggers is, is a far cry from the wicked Nazi oppressor of mythology. Uh, Reinhold Eggers was a man... He, he was a veteran of the First World War. He was a, a professional Prussian soldier, really. I mean, he was a man of considerable honour. Uh, he was also an Anglophile, hilariously. <laughs> I mean, he had spent... A lot of, he was a school teacher by profession, and he'd spent uh, before the war uh, teaching in Cheltenham, which is a most civilized part of Britain. Uh, he could never quite get over the fact that the prisoners inside Colditz were so rude to him, <laughs> whereas the people of Cheltenham had been frightfully polite. Um, and he um, he took his job very seriously. He was the security officer. He was there to stop anyone getting out, but he did so in accordance with the rules. The rules were the Geneva Convention of 1929, which laid down very specific ways in which prisoners were to be treated. And these rules were uh, inspected by the neutral powers who would come in and make sure that the, that the rules were being followed. And, and so Eggers was not a man of sort of casual, savage brutality. Far from it. I mean, if you were caught trying to escape and you didn't surrender, you were quite likely to be shot uh, while escaping. But he wasn't he wasn't a brute. He wasn't an SS oppressor. And in fact, he, he became very sort of he become very shirty if um, if, he, if he was ever accused of sort of violating the rules. He was one of those sort of German types who really sticks as closely as he could to what he was supposed to do. And that was to stop people getting out. Was he a Nazi? No. He'd never joined the Nazi party. In fact, he rather disapproved of, of all of that. He, 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 he sort of stood apart from that. He was not alone in this. I mean, it's one of the things that one needs to sort of bear in mind with Colditz. When we think of a prison camp in the Second World War, we rightly and automatically think about the Holocaust and the, the horrors of that, of that whole story. This is different. This is a camp that is run by the German army. And and it's not run on brutal, savage Nazi lines. These were professional soldiers. And, and so there was a certain honour. I don't want to exaggerate it. I mean, there was a great conflict between the prisoners and their guards. But there was also a sense of sort of office, shared officer's honour. And, and Eggers really does exemplify that. Did he enjoy his role as the sort of cat amongst the mice, as the escape thwarter of Colditz? Oh, he, I think he did. Yes, he did. And he became in a way, one of the great chroniclers of Colditz because he, he regarded the kind of his job as a sort of science, really. And, he, and he, so he gathered all the sort of escape material that he lay his hands on. You know, every time there was a, a disguise was used and he managed to capture the perpetrators, he would sort of confiscate the disguise and keep it in what he called the, the Colditz Museum, which was a sort of display case, really, for all the kind of failed attempts. And he would, visiting dignitaries, would be taken round this by Eggers, who became something of a celebrity uh, among sort of the prison warder fraternity. I mean, he was, he was taken off to give lectures at other prison camps and so on. When there were escapes from other camps, he was brought in to kind of investigate. He became the kind of Sherlock Holmes of sort of, of German um, prison camps. I mean, I, I, I make light of it, but actually it was a pretty serious business. He even, and this I thought was extraordinary. When there was an escape attempt in Colditz, he would persuade uh, the escapers to reenact their escape if he caught them. <laughs> so you have these, and, and he had these incredible set of photographs, which I managed to obtain. One of the really lucky breaks here was that I was given by the grandson of one of the, uh, the former inmates, I was given Eggers' own scrapbook, which he had been given as, as a gift at the end of the war. And it's a wonderful document because it contains all these posed photographs 
of allied officers <laughs> peering out of sort of half-built tunnels with big grins on their faces. Mm. Uh, and Eggers brought up the town photographer to take photographs of them. And they, it's a wonderful artefact. Let's talk about the prisoner, pop, the prison population itself. There were, as you say, British, Canadian, Australian, Polish, Dutch, French officers lumped in together there. How did they get on, the, the grips, the different nationalities? Well, for many of these young men, it was the first time they'd ever met anybody from a foreign country. I mean, we, we sort of imagine that, this, you know, that the world was as cosmopolitan then as it is today. It definitely wasn't. So for many of them, you know, meeting a Polish person for the first time was, was rather extraordinary. So in one way, they got on, they got on really well and they, they would pair off sort of language lessons and those sort of things. But it was a time of intense international rivalry the different nationalities were sort of competing, if you like, to get out of this castle, and they operated in national groups, um, which was actually very counterproductive to begin with because at one point there was something like four or even five different tunnels being built at the same time secretly through the sort of fabric of Colditz, and they were literally undermining each other. Well, they were unaware um, of each other's tunnel schemes? Well, at the beginning, yes, they were, and this, this proved a real problem because they kept tripping each other up. You know, one escape attempt would foil another one, effectively. Uh, and so they set up a kind of international committee, a kind of UN, if you like, of sort of, you know, uh, escapers, so, so there would be an escape officer for each national group and those escape officers would coordinate with the other escape officers to make sure that they weren't going to get in each other's way it was sort of i suppose it was like the eu really in a way Except <laughs> in fact it was more like the eu in, 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 in more ways than one in the sense that the brits kind of agreed to do it until it didn't suit their interests <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question now, which to them, the, those men, uh, if they were alive today, would just seem like the stupidest question in the world. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Why were they so keen to escape and risk their lives rather than sit out the war in relative safety and relative comfort in some ways? It's not a stupid question, Richard. It's, it's a very good question. And it's, it has multiple answers, really. I mean, one is that a lot of these soldiers were officers who were captured at the beginning of the war. Many of them were captured at Dunkirk, in fact, during the, during the retreat. And they felt that they had failed. They felt that their, their, their duty as professional soldiers, these were not the conscripts, these were the, the sort of original British Expeditionary Force and others, that they, that they had sort of failed to, to do their national duty. So there was a great sort of psychological, self-imposed pressure, really, to get out, get back to their home countries and rejoin the army. That was, or the Navy or the Air Force, I mean, that, that was the sort of impulsion. And there was a great sense of kind of, failure that hung over Colditz, I think, for many of them, that they had, this was a job that they had not done properly. One also has to bear in mind that at the beginning of the war, escaping from Colditz was a sort of game. Now, I don't want to exaggerate that too much because it had its risks. Goodness knows if you were, you know, if you were caught on the ramparts and you refused to sort of come down, you were going to be shot at. But if you got out of the castle and if you were recaptured, which happened in the vast majority of cases, because getting out of Colditz was one thing, but getting out of Germany was something else, a far, far harder thing. If you were captured, the worst that was going to happen to you was that you were going to be brought back to the castle, put in solitary for a few weeks, and then you'd be back in the prison community. Now, that changed as the war developed and became more brutal and more horrific. But certainly for the first couple of years... 
it was a sort of way of getting through the the, the, the sort of boredom of, of normal daily life in Colditz was to obsessively think about how to get out. So it was both a sort of duty and an obsession for many people. So that, I think, is why escape and the possibilities of escape became the single most animating conversation that ever took place in that castle. Everyone talked about it all the time. It seems, according to your book, that the French were right at the forefront very early on and having, having a red-hot go at escaping either individually or en masse. It's quite extraordinary. Amongst these captured French officers, for me, I have to say, the most outstanding was a chap called Pierre-Marie Jean-Baptiste Marès Le Brun. He was the most stylish and eccentric of the French prisoners. What can you tell me about Pierre-Marie Jean-Baptiste Marès Le Brun? Then? He was terrific. He was a great character. He was, um, he was a cavalry officer, extremely brave, very, very elegant. He was always beautifully turned out. And he had a... And there's a reason I'm telling you this story. He had a, he had a wonderful set of Givenchy suits that he'd brought with him um, to Colditz. <laughs> he, was, he was sort of extremely sort of soigné figure. But he, he was the... F- he was actually the second escaper from Colditz. The first was also a Frenchman, but uh, Mérès Lebrun's escape is quite extraordinary. He, he, looking very elegant in his gym kit one day, he went down <laughs> with the other prisoners to the exercise yard, and on a signal, one of his compatriots made his cupped his hands into a stirrup and sort of leant against the outside barbed wire, which was about fourteen feet high. And Mérès Lebrun ran towards him, put his foot in the stirrup and vaulted over the top of this thing like a, like a sort of thoroughbred <laughs> taking a kind of a fence and, and a steeplechase. And, and then he ran up the hill. He'd, he'd calculated that the guards had, I think he thought they, they had a dozen shots between them. So he zigzagged up the, up the hill and counted out the 12 shots as they missed, then climbed over the wall ran up the, out through the park, stole a bicycle, cycled 200 miles to the Swiss border and then sort of sashayed across the border, <laughs> amazingly, into neutral Switzerland where he met a very pretty Swiss milkmaid and said, where am I? And she said, you are in, you are in Switzerland, sir. And he said, oh, good, I'm going home then. The most extraordinary thing about this story is that he'd left a message behind with, as I say, his set of rather smart clothes and his suitcase, saying, Dear Commandant, I have decided to go back to France. Please will you return my clothes? (laughs) Astonishingly, that is what the Commandant did. He packed them up and sent them back to France. So good old Mérès Lebrun was able to climb back into his outfit and, and off he went, rejoined the French army um, and, and was back in uniform. I mean, it's an extraordinary... It, it's just a little illustration of this kind of... this strange honour among the officer class at that time, that the Germans were actually prepared to go to the trouble to send back an escapist kit. Despite all this, there was, as you show, this ugly streak of anti-Semitism amongst the French officers, some hangover from the Dreyfus affair. How did this anti-Semitism play out between them, Ben? Well, this was a very shocking discovery, and I had no idea about this, but because quite a few of the French officers were Vichyites, they were supporters of the collaborating French regime uh, in, in uh, un, at that point, unoccupied France, they were quite sympathetic, oddly enough. Even though they were prisoners, they were, they were in some ways sympathetic to the German cause. And that included, for some of them, a, a vicious streak of anti-Semitism, which meant that about a year into the Colditz experience, um, a group of the French officers said that they no longer wished to be billeted alongside the French Jewish officers. 
they, they demanded that the commandant remove those Jewish officers to a separate part of the castle, which is duly what happened. The commandant, sensing a propaganda opportunity, said, right, OK, well, if that's what you want. And the Jews were put into, what, into the, an attic area, which immediately became known as the ghetto. God. Um, and what did the I mean, British make of that, Ben? Thing. I mean, anti-Semitism is not unknown in Britain, let's be honest. But, but by and large, the British officers were appalled by this and, and furious. And it led to a really quite bitter confrontation between the French and the British um, sections in, in the castle. It was one of the moments of really highest tension. It was resolved in the end. There was a sort of an agreement that... that, that um, the, the Jewish officers, in fact, were moved off, most of them, to a, to a different camp, which was a way of sort of getting around it. But it left a lingering sort of animosity between those two sections. And, in fact, a lot of the Vichyite officers were also moved out of the castle in the end. But, but it, was, it, was a, it was a grim reminder that the kind of tensions and biases and prejudices and political clashes that had preceded the war and, and um, in large part on which the war was fought came into this castle and the artificial world that was created in there in some ways exaggerated and exacerbated those kinds of tensions and those kind of prejudices. Well, there's intra-group tensions amongst the British as well. How did the class tensions within the British servicemen play out in Colditz? Well, this is another of those discoveries that, again, I knew nothing about before I started researching this book. Um, uh, as officers, these British soldiers had the right to servants. That was under the Geneva Convention. So just as they would in the, in the army, they had ordinary prisoners, privates, batmen, as they were known, to look after them. And these were a group of so-called orderlies who were brought in as servants. Now, they were also prisoners. Don't get me wrong, they were POWs, but they were privates. So they had none of the rights that were uh, available in the intensely hierarchical world at that time, that were available to officers. So they cooked and cleaned. And interestingly, they were not allowed to escape from Colditz. They, they were told that they were there as, as servants and therefore they didn't have the same right or obligation to try to get out. That's extraordinary, Isn't that extraordinary, Ben. Isn't that amazing? I mean, 21st century, we think of that as absolutely unacceptable. And what were they expected to do for these officers? Well, cook and clean and polish their belt buckles. I mean, that was their jobs. Not interestingly, though, Richard, this is where it gets really interesting. There was, believe it or not, a strike in Colditz by these orderlies. At one point, they said, we're not doing this anymore. We don't see any reason why we should be uh, the servant class here, the working class. And they downed tools. They refused to go on. Now, of course... Um, there were no, and the officers were appalled. Um, this was a kind of complete reversal of the whole idea of the master servant officer other orderly other other ranks uh, kind of system. And of course, those striking orderlies were imme immediately moved out of Colditz by the by the Germans and put in another camp. But it was quite an interesting moment. It was another reflection of the fact that sort of you know the rise in kind of industrial tensions if you like that was taking place in the outer world was also reflected inside Colditz but it's fascinating there is no example of a single orderly a single person from the other ranks ever attempting to escape from Colditz because they were told they were not allowed to to us that seems scandalous that one group of people should be allowed to seek their liberty uh, and another because of their socio-economic status should not in 1941, there was a crucial moment, you show, when a contingent of Dutch prisoners arrived with news of a hole in the border between Germany and Switzerland, which was obviously crucial for 
the would-be escapees because that was how they were going to slip into neutral Switzerland and, and escape back to Britain again. Tell me how the Dutch officer in question had discovered the existence of this, this hole in the German security on the border. Well, this was probably the single most important piece of escape intelligence to have been brought back to, to, to Kolditz because... It, and it came about purely by chance. Uh, one, a Dutchman, a Dutch officer called La Rive, um, had been uh, captured on the Swiss border. He he escaped from a different camp, but he was captured before he got across. And and while he was being interrogated, he got into conversation with a particular Gestapo officer, a German Gestapo officer. And this is quite early on in the war. And the Gestapo officer began to brag um, about how easy it was. Uh, he said, why, why did you not try and get across at this point in the, on the border? Because actually there's a hole in the border. And immediately Larive's ears pricked up and he, and he managed to persuade this Gestapo officer, who at this point of the war believed that Germany was going to win anyway, so there was no point in sort of keeping these secrets, started to boast about the fact that there is this little salient on the Swiss border. It's called the Singen Salient. And it's a, it's a sort of finger of land, if you like, that sort of points into, into Germany from Switzerland. And it was unguarded. I mean, it, 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 parts of the Swiss border, <laughs> like Swiss cheese, had holes in them. And this was the biggest one. So this Gestapo officer was saying, oh, you fool, you should have, you should have tried to escape here because... Yeah, <laughs> should, have, should have gone through here, mate. And even showed him on the map. This is the, this is the hilarious bit. Stuck a sort of stubby finger on the map and said, "This is where you should have gone across." Now, Larive immediately—he was a no fool. Larive immediately memorized this, and when he was duly shipped back to Kolditz, he told his Dutch commanding officer. And, and and to their huge credit, the Dutch shared this piece of information with the other national groups, and and the Singen salient then became the kind of focus for many of the subsequent escape attempts. If you could get to the Singen salient, and they all memorised the little path that led up to it and the, and the kind of houses on the road. that would, So they knew, they knew from memory how they could get across. So if they could get to the Swiss border, there was a decent chance they would get away. For a long while, everyone was building a tunnel. Each, each one of the prison groups was building a tunnel. The French built the most ambitious tunnel, a tunnel they called Le Métrole. How ambitious was this tunnel and how did it work? It was quite extraordinary, Richard. And you know what? Part of it is still there. You can, you can actually climb down wow. into the great French tunnel uh, in, the, in the castle of Kolditz, um, where I have spent considerable time, not in the, not in the, not in the tunnel, I would say, but in the, in the castle. Um, this was a, a, a remarkable feat of French engineering. It started in the clock tower... Okay, went down through the sleeves of the winding mechanism of the clock, clock tower. So you, you, you slithered down there. Then it went 140 metres under the castle. It, they burrowed through the, uh, the cellar walls underneath the chapel, sawing the chapel struts as they went and taking the spoil, all the dugout stuff um, from the tunnels and hiding it in the attics. It was an amazing achievement. Each each foot of this tunnel had to be reinforced with stolen bed planks from from the bunks. It had, believe it or not, an air sort of air conditioning system uh, inside it, whereby they pumped fresh air to the end of it through a series of of tin cans, sort of stuck together to create a pipe. Do you know it even had a telephone system? 
God. They had worked out an early warning system. They'd stolen wires to create a telephone system, which they ran through the floor of the chapel so that if the German guards arrived, they could alert the tunnellers to stop digging. Um, it was an absolutely extraordinary thing, the Metro, and, and dozens of French officers were involved in it, and it was planned to be the biggest breakout in Colditz. Every single French officer was going to take part in it. They were just going to get them all out in one go. And the idea was that it would end up in the cliff face, really. Um, sort of they would burrow horizontally underneath the chapel and, and hit the cliff face, and then they were all going to get out. And tragically, it was betrayed. How was it betrayed? How, how, did, how did the uh, Germans twig that something was up? Eggers, uh, Reinhold Eggers, we spoke about him, was a man of honour in some ways, but he was not above using intelligence and stool pigeons and spies. And he had a spy in the French camp. I've identified him in the book for the first time. And this man gave up his compatriots. And, and it, it, I mean, this is a, a terrible part of the story. He, he won his liberty as a result. I mean, he was moved surreptitiously to another camp uh, from which he was, he was allowed uh, to leave. It, that was the deal that was done with Eggers. He was called Carignard. Um, he was actually the assistant to the curé, the, the priest in, in, in Colditz. And he, he, you know, to the end of his life, he was never... He was, it was only after his death um, that he was identified by Eggers as having been the stool pigeon. But, oh, the stool but, you know, pigeon got away with it, did he, in the, the end? The stool pigeon mm. got away with it. Well, he did, but then, he, you know, historically he has not. You know, mm. I mean, we now know who he was. It, it, it's a, such an interesting subject that collaboration you know why why would people do that and we look at it in such a sort of black and white way you know but actually i think carignard was under huge pressure i think his i think his family were essentially being held hostage in france who knows what people do under these circumstances it's very easy with the hindsight of history to say you know that was terrible and who was to know how the war was going to end saving your skin is one of the things that humans do Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. One of the most necessary aspects of concealing an escape was to mess with the German roll call system. Tell me some of the ways which the Allied prisoners messed with the Germans' heads when it came to roll call. Well, it was very important to sort of mess up the roll call because if you could conceal an escape for long enough, that would mean that those prisoners who'd got outside the castle walls had extra time to get away. So one of the ways was to try and hide the fact that there had, in fact, been escape. Now, there were lots of sort of inventive ways of doing this. There were three roll calls a day, so, so they had to be good at this. One of the ways, which one of the ones I like most, was that, well, one obvious way was that, a, you know, one soldier would duck down at the end of the line, run to the other end of the line <laughs> behind the backs and, you know, sort of pop up at the other end. But that was easy to call. The Dutch, amazingly, actually built a replica model of, a, of two people, actually. They called them Max and Morris. And they were sort of, 
They were busts of, of officers with hats on and, you know, um, and moustaches uh, with sort of great coats draped over them. And they would simply hold this thing up between two of them. And the Germans were going fast, counting along the line, and would think that, oh, there's an, wouldn't even notice that there were the dummies in there. Um, and in fact, hilariously, at one point in his diary, said, I, he said, I thoroughly approve of the... I'm giving him an English accent, he was a German, but um, I really approve of the Dutch contingent. They stand very erect on parade. Well, of course, they do. two of them were actually dummies being held sort of stiffly <laughs> upright, um, which I completely love. So that was, that was just one of the ways that they went to huge lengths to try and convince them. The other way was actually to conceal people inside the castle because, obviously, if they could give the Germans the impression that someone had escaped when they hadn't, that bought time for them to get someone else out of the castle without it being noticed, if you see what I mean. So they had a system of ghosts where individuals would be hidden inside the castle. The Germans would think they had escaped and then they would, as it were, be at their leisure to get out without, it, without the alarm being raised. One of the most fascinating prisoners, perhaps the most fascinating prisoner for me, was an Indian doctor named Barendranath Mazumdar. How did this man fetch up in Colditz in the first place? Mazumdar was the only non-white officer in Colditz. And he was a doctor, as you say. He was from uh, Bengal, but he'd been educated in Britain. He was a very, very good doctor. He'd volunteered for the Royal Army Medical Corps and was captured just after Dunkirk and taken into, into Colditz. And his experience there was quite unlike any other because, and this is very painful to admit, I mean, he suffered the most egregious racism in Colditz, not from the Germans, the Germans regarded Mazumdar as a sort of propaganda opportunity. They tried to recruit him, in fact, to persuade other Indians to turn against um, the British in, in India. And he was an Indian um, nationalist too, wasn't he? Oh, he was. He was a fervent... This is what makes him so interesting. He was a fervent supporter of Mahatma Gandhi and, uh, and the nationalist leader Subhas Chandra Bose. But he was also, in a funny way, a sort of British patriot. He had made a sort of oath of allegiance to the crown and he didn't feel that he could, he could break that. But he suffered terribly in Colditz because he was treated as a second-class citizen. Uh, he was made to cook and clean. He was nicknamed Jumbo. He was treated with considerable disrespect. And this is the really appalling thing. He was told he, too, was not allowed to escape. He was told Jumbo. That was his nickname. They said, Jumbo, you can't escape from here because you're the wrong colour. There aren't very many Indians in Germany and they'll just pick you up. This actually turned out not to be true because... He went on hunger strike. He told the commandant that unless he was moved to an all-Indian prison, uh, and there were two, believe it or not, in accordance with the kind of racial stratification that the Germans espoused, there were, there were two prison camps that only contained Indian prisoners. He went on hunger strike and said, you've got to move me to one of these. Sure enough, the commandant did, and Mazumdar managed to escape. He managed to climb out of this prison camp and walked 400 miles to the border with Switzerland. He walked at night. He hid during the day. In, in many ways, his escape, I think, is more extraordinary than any other because he was not just escaping from the Germans. He was also escaping from the British. Oh, uh, and his story's yeah. never been told mm. because it doesn't fit into the, the slight mythological story that sort of took over after the war of... British, upper-middle-class, white men, you know, doing the decent thing. I mean, it's not to say that that, that that story isn't partly true, but like all wartime stories, there is another story to be told. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to be able to tell Berendra Nath Muzumdar's story for the first time. 
Coldit's most famous prisoner was a man named Wing Commander Douglas Tinlegs Bada, <laughs> who had flown missions for the RAF even after losing both legs in a kind of a reckless air crash that he'd perpetrated. There was a great movie I remember watching as a kid, Ben, called Reach for the Sky. First of all, before we get into the other side of his character, did he deserve his reputation for bravery, Ben? Oh, yes. I mean, Bardo was astonishingly courageous and was able to inspire in others acts of bravery that they didn't think they were capable of. And he became a kind of poster boy for the war. The Ministry of of War realised very early on that a man with two artificial legs who nonetheless insisted on flying again and became a highly uh, acclaimed Spitfire pilot was a brilliant propaganda opportunity. And Bader became hugely famous, not just in Britain. I mean, the Germans all knew about Douglas Bader as well. He became a kind of folk hero and he put his his celebrity after the war to, to very good use. He raised a huge amount of money for disability charities. There's a moment in Reach for the Sky when he's in Colditz... Oh, no, it's another prison camp, and uh, a German officer barks at him, why do you not salute for a German officer? And he says, I'm not taking <laughs> lessons in manners from Jerry's like you. Yes, uh, no, that's... <laughs> that's that's sort of fairly true. Like, because Bader, Bader was completely kind of incorrigible, and when he was shot down in his Spitfire over northern France, uh, when he ejected, one of his legs got caught underneath the joystick... And so as his parachute inflated, the leather straps holding it to to, to to his stump broke and he left one of his legs behind. So as he landed with one leg and the Germans obviously captured him very quickly, but he was so famous, Bader, that the Germans then amazingly sent a, a message to British intelligence saying, we've captured Douglas Bader, but he's only got one leg. Please, can you send a spare leg? <laughs> Amazingly, this is what the British did. They parachuted a second prosthetic limb into northern France over a Luftwaffe base in an operation, unimprovably, an operation codenamed Operation Leg. They, they spent a lot, spent a lot of time thinking about that. Thinking thing. about that one, <laughs> exactly. Um, the leg was reattached to Douglas Bader, who immediately tried to escape with two legs, didn't, didn't manage it, was picked up and, and taken to Colditz. But there is another side to Douglas Bader. Bader was heroic, but he was also a complete monster. He was a, he was a rude, arrogant, self-inflating, enormously unpleasant man who, who, who treated particularly people he thought of a lower class and a lower status. He treated them appallingly. He's not like the Kenneth Moore character in the film because the real, the real Douglas Bader was capable of extreme cruelty to other people, and and notably to his own Batman, a Scotsman called Alec Ross, who who accompanied Bardo, who looked after him, cooked and cleaned, carried him up and down stairs, four flights for his bath. Bardo was given special rations because he was so so well-known. None of these he ever shared with Alec Ross. Uh, He treated Alec Ross like a complete skivvy. And, And when Alec Ross was told that he was allowed to go home, there was this kind of prisoner swap exchange thing going on um, about two years before the end of the war. Ross went to Bader and said, look, I've got good news, Wing Commander, I'm going home. And and Douglas Bader said, no, you're not. He said, you're here as my lackey, and that is what you will stay and do. And sure enough, poor old Alec Ross spent another two years inside Colditz because Bader would not let him go home. Why did Ross agree 
to that. He could have said, you know, well, up yours, Barty. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to well, go home. Well, funny enough, he addressed that. He addressed that, Alec Ross, in, in later life. There's a wonderful recording that he left uh, in the Imperial War Museum, Alec Ross, in which he said, look, I should have I should have objected. I should have stood up to Barter. But he said I was so cowed by him and the habits of obedience were so ingrained that I didn't feel I could. I just had to do what he ordered me to do. Obeying orders was what Alec Ross had been trained to do. Looking back on it in later life, he was absolutely furious with what had happened and, and the way that his liberty had been curtailed by, by this man. One of the things your book revealed to me was the existence of an organisation I'd never heard of called MI9. MI9, a new branch of military intelligence set up to aid escaping prisoners of war. Tell me about its presiding genius, a man that was nicknamed Clutty, who did all sorts of things for POWs. Christopher Clayton Hutton, known as Clutty, was an inventor. He was really the original Q from the James Bond books, <laughs> I mean, if you like. He was somebody who had a kind of one of those strange minds that is able to sort of think laterally, to think round corners. And Clutty's job was to, is, to invent and, and get into places like Colditz escape equipment. Because in order to get out of Germany, um, getting out of Colditz was one thing. You know, you could tunnel, try and tunnel out, you could try and put on disguises. There were various ways of doing it. But in order to get out of Germany, you needed to have money, you needed to have false papers, you needed to have compasses, you maps. needed to have maps. Mm. And Clutty invented brilliant ways of smuggling this stuff into Colditz. He worked out how to hide maps inside playing cards, how to transport money into Colditz disguised inside gramophone records. He brought it, he sent in a compass hidden inside a walnut. He even managed to obtain <laughs> and smuggle in, believe it or not, original maps of the foundations of Colditz so that they could try and work out ways of tunnelling through them. Clutty was extraordinary. He was also probably completely mad. I mean, he spent most of his, most of his war hiding in a laboratory that he'd built for himself in a field in Surrey. Who has the kind of an idea saying, I know, I'll conceal a compass inside a walnut? Walnut. <laughs> it takes a very particular kind of mind, doesn't it? But I, I love Clutty's story. I mean, he really deserves his own book. And I suppose Clutty, for me, illustrates that they also serve who work out how to hide a compass inside a walnut. <laughs> Indeed. Eventually, uh, Reinhold Eggers, Lieutenant Reinhold Eggers, re realised that somehow this gear was being smuggled in in the parcels, the personal parcels being sent to the prisoners, and installed an X-ray machine, held the goods in, in, in storage, put them through an X-ray machine before they could be given to the prisoners. And this is where another extraordinary eccentric Frenchman comes into the picture, Lieutenant Frédéric Scarface Geeg. Tell me how <laughs> Lieutenant Scarface Geeg got around the package surveillance system. Well, you see, Eggers was, thought he was one step ahead by having this X-ray machine. That he, because what happened with the parcels, and again, this was under the sort of officer's system, parcels were sent into Colditz. And the night they arrived, they would be held in the parcels office and then the next morning Eggers would x-ray them to make sure that they didn't have contraband or escape equipment inside and then distribute them. So, But what, what Eggers didn't know was that Geeg, Frederico Geeg, was a lock picker. Uh, and he was aided, actually, by, by an Australian called Bush Parker, who was also a sort of professional lock picker. And the two of them managed to work out a system for getting into the parcels office which meant that when they arrived at uh, these parcels, that <laughs> night the officers would break into the parcels office, extract what they needed from the parcels, seal them up again, 
And then the next morning, when Eggers <laughs> duly x-rayed them, of course, there was nothing left in them of, of, of any value. But this system, believe it or not, worked for a very long time. The French managed to bring in the parts not only for a generator so that they could use it for building the tunnel, but actually for creating a radio, a two radios inside Colditz, with which they were getting the news bulletins. So, in fact... The, the officers inside Colditz, the prisoners, ended up knowing far more about what was happening in the war than the guards did. And that was, that was because people like Bushbarger and, and Geeg had managed to work out how to pick the lock. I love the moment when Lieutenant Eggers realised that something's up with that storage room because he discovers that the cat is locked inside the storage room, separated completely from her kittens on the outside of the storage room, which would have led him to think... Hey, What's going on? How did that cat get, get in there and why is it still in there? So This is one of those moments of absurd <laughs> comedy in Cold Hits. It must have been hugely when, entertaining too. Well, yeah. entertaining, but you can just imagine mm. Eggers going, hmm, <laughs> something, something is not right here because the cat is on the wrong side of the door. I mean, that was a key moment when you'd think, hmm, OK, they should have rumbled that something wasn't right here. The story of Colditz is, is, is so colourful because it's filled with these marvellous escape attempt stories and these stories of how they carefully thwarted the German guards. But really the true story you show, though, is that the Colditz, life in Colditz, particularly as the war dragged on into 43 and 44, long periods of intense, depressing, demoralising boredom amongst the men. Did they become sick of each other over, over time? Again, the psychological mental health aspects of Colditz were a taboo after the war. Nobody wanted to talk about what the actual sort of mental impact of this kind of imprisonment was. But it was very dramatic in some cases. People became very mentally unwell inside that place. Many, even having survived the war and having survived the Colditz experience, never recovered fully from the psychological trauma. And, and bear in mind... Being a prisoner of war is different from being a civilian prisoner in the sense that you don't know how long you're ever going to be incarcerated for. It's not You're not ticking the days off uh, on the wall because the, you, you're going to be in there as long as the war lasts. And, of course, in 1942, 3, 4, 5, even 5, nobody knew how long they were going to be locked up for, and that has a particular psychological burden. It, it makes it very hard to work. You know, you might be there forever. You might die inside this huge Gothic castle. And that brings huge pressure. And people dealt with it in different ways. I mean, some threw themselves wholeheartedly into escaping. It became a kind of obsession for some of them, to the point of self-destruction in some cases. Others simply hunkered down and decided that they would read through the war. Colditz had a very good library. Others threw themselves into amateur dramatics. Everyone put on plays and pantomimes and, and concerts and reviews and, and those sorts of things. There's a way, I think, of sort of dealing with the intense tedium of this place interspersed, uh, as we said at the beginning, with moments of incredible jeopardy and excitement. So it was a very, very strange place psychologically, uh, apart from anything else. They used to nettle the guards through a process called goon baiting, as, as you say. At one point, they resorted to using wasps to try and nettle the guards. Can you tell me how that worked? Well, this is one of my favourite. I mean, goon baiting became a kind of art, really, and it was a way of blowing off steam, I think, a way of sort of getting through the day. They would mock, tease, ridicule, baffle, try to kind of throw the guards off, off balance, just to the point 
short of when those guards would lose their temper and open fire. So it was a kind of it was a dodgy thing, and they would do it in all sorts of complicated, different ways, whistling on parade. And one of the, one of the favourite ones from the British contingent was to stare fixedly at the fly buttons of the commandant <laughs> in the hope that it would make him sort of self conscious, and eventually he'd check them. And if he checked his fly buttons, that was a moral victory. victory. It's incredibly puerile. This it comes straight from sort of British public school tradition of teasing the schoolmasters, but it was a way of kind of getting through the day. And my favourite, which you've mm. mentioned, is the great wasp goon bait of 1943, <laughs> when they discovered a wasp's nest in one of the castle walls and began capturing wasps and then very gingerly tying to the legs of the wasps using thread, cigarette paper, messages on which they had written the words Deutschland kaputt, <laughs> Germany, is, Germany is finished... And they they hid these wasps inside matchboxes, and on one occasion, the whole idea was that that these wasps would sort of fly outside the castle and sting Germans and pass along this very important propaganda message. <laughs> one point, as I say, they on a signal they all released their wasps simultaneously while on parade, and a cloud of angry wasps ascended into the air carrying this bizarre message with them. So the idea was, Ben, eventually that the, the, the ideally the wasp would sting the arse of a German or something and have a little message dangling from the sting. Yeah, <laughs> and he would, he would, look, he would look, at, look at where the thing and notice the wasp and say, ah, it has a message attached. Well, I mean, it was, was not going well. God knows it. <laughs> it was not going as well as we thought. Mm. The wasp was passed on the message. I mean, of course it was mad and pointless and it, it, I doubt a single one of these things was ever read by a single German. But it was a way of sort of creating a kind of bonding resilience and refusal to kind of give in. I think it was there to sort of to show that we hadn't given up. Towards the end of the war, you showed that there was a plan to build a glider in secret, in Colditz. How was that supposed to work? Not just a plan, Richard. The, the glider was built. A plan was hatched to create a two-man glider that would then be launched off the roof of the castle and given the right climatic conditions and the right wind in the right direction, they, would, they worked out there would be just enough lift for this thing to, to glide across the nearby river and land in a field on the other side and, and then the two people would escape. Building this glider was an astonishing uh, operation. First of all, they had to find somewhere to build it, so they created a kind of false workshop they shortened with a false wall one of the top attics and inside that they began to build this glider built out of 600 different pieces of wood metal bed struts that they that they bent and soldered it took months good god how didn't the germans notice all the all the you know bang 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 uh uh uh, soaring noises and all of that (laughs) it was all done with muffled hammers (laughs) and special saws that they created by biting uh by carving uh the teeth of the saw and it was wrapped in mattress ticking the sort of cloth that covers the mattress and then that was then painted with a kind of glue really made out of boiled uh, millet a kind a, a kind of grain to create a kind of porridge outside that would then tighten all the fabric on the body of the of the glider i mean it was an amazing thing to do and there is one fo- it was completed and there is one photograph of it it never flew the war came to an end before it could fly now i'm not absolutely sure that it wouldn't have crashed immediately on takeoff because 
that the conditions had to be absolutely perfect. They built a sort of runway that was going to sit on the apex of the longest roof. So Good when God. the time came for takeoff, they were going to attach pulleys, and believe it or not, a bath filled with concrete cement was going to be dropped off the end of the roof, and with this weight that was going to go rapidly down 90 feet, they hoped that the effect of that would catapult this glider into the air with the two men aboard. I think the strong likelihood is that they would both have been killed. I think they'd have followed the concrete bath very, very swiftly off the edge of the thing. But, but that's an interesting point because I'm not sure that, in a way, I'm not sure the senior officers ever thought the thing would fly. I think it was a psychological flight, if you like, as much as it was a practical escape attempt because the fact that everybody was working on it allowed everybody in the community to sort of imagine flying beyond the walls of the castle. It was a, it was almost literally a sort of flight of fantasy that allowed them to, to imagine soaring into the sky away from this dreadful castle. So it had a kind of psychological impact as much as it did a practical one, much more than the practical one, in fact. The last remaining prisoners were very lucky not all to have been shot by the SS as the SS got more and more control of the declining Wehrmacht the end of World War II. It was a miracle they weren't all shot in the end and it said something about the camp commandant at the time too, I think, that he was able to fend off the SS. It was eventually liberated by the US Army in intense fighting. What kind of welcome did the American troops receive once they entered the castle of these strange, intensely creative, deeply frustrated, relieved men, Ben? Well, there was a huge upsurge of joy, really. These four GIs, these four American GIs, young men sort of staggered into the castle and suddenly found themselves surrounded by whooping, shouting, cheering men, throwing their hats in the air. In a way, the second episode of that liberation was even more extraordinary because the first civilian into Colditz was a woman war reporter called Lee Carson, Again, a sort of unsung heroine of, of the war, really. I mean, she was extraordinary, Lee Carson. She, she worked for a news service. She'd covered the D-Day landings. And she was the first woman in, in Colditz. And she drove in in her Jeep. The other thing about Lee Carson was she was astonishingly attractive. And she'd made herself a, a sort of a, a tight-fitting boiler suit. And she had this flaming red hair. And the sight of this extremely uh, beautiful woman driving into Colditz in her Jeep, I mean, had a sort of... There was almost a riot in the in the castle. This was the first woman many of them had seen for years. And, of course, <laughs> the first person to sidle, you know, to come straight at her was, was Douglas Bader, who immediately offered himself for interview and said, you know, I'll, I'll happily give you an exclusive interview, and then climbed into her Jeep as she was leaving and said, right, we're off, where are we going? So he was the first person to get out of Colditz after the liberation, typically. Ben, it's a wonderful story and it's great what you've done to make it a much bigger, fuller and more human story as well. Such a pleasure speaking with you, Ben, and thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Richard. Thank you for having me on. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.